Pharmacogenetics allows us to predict how patients are likely to respond to drugs based on unique differences in their genetic makeup. Genetic variants can affect the function of enzymes involved in drug metabolism, leading to both adverse events and toxicities, as well as treatment failures. Incorporating pharmacogenetic testing routinely into patient care has been shown to both improve outcomes and decrease costs. Yet despite these benefits, pharmacogenetic testing is still underutilized. Our guest today is out to change that. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Christine Ashcraft is CEO of Uscript, a company providing unique pharmacogenetic information as well as software incorporated into the electronic medical record. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Joe. I really appreciate you having me. You have some very exciting news, which I wasn't even aware of at the time that we uh, booked the podcast, but your company, Uscript, so we can just start off with this. So I think it's so exciting. Your company, Uscript, has just been acquired by Invite. So Congratulations, and I think this is, in a sense, some an end of your entre- your uh, startup or entrepreneurial journey. In another sense, it seems like it just is just the beginning of something great, really validating what you've done, and then a large company or a larger company comes in and shows interest and then wants to take what you've done and get it out to as many people as possible. So I think this is fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited. So um, they did actually officially announce after the stock market uh, closed yesterday that they were acquiring both Uscript uh, and Genelex Labs that I used to run as well. Very, very excited. They're a mission-driven culture and are dedicated to making genetic information both affordable as well as widely accessible to everyone. And C-pharmacogenomics is a core piece in providing precision medicine. And, you know, did a typical buy versus build scenario and just understood that bringing our technology to the market through the access channels that they already had uh, was a better solution than trying to build something out. So incredibly excited to see this validation that pharmacogenomics is ready for prime time. I think it really does validate your concept and really show the importance of this. Now, could you give us a little bit of history of pharmacogenetics in general before we learn about your journey. I remember first hearing about it sometime in the late 90s. The uh, cytochrome P450 system was the first thing I had heard about. And at the time, it was somewhat revolutionary or a big step forward, just this concept that people could metabolize drugs differently. And then there were genes that encoded for these enzymes or, or proteins. So is that as far back as it goes? Or was there early work that preceded that? Yeah, I think there was a lot of early work. If you go way back to 510, Pythagoras actually discovered that some people died from faba beans, which we've learned is the GC, uh, G6PD variation. Um, but I don't think you wanted me to go quite that far back. Um, but we, uh, we've been doing, um, I think, clinical research around pharmacogenomics for well over 50 years. But I think it real, really came into the clinic for the first time about 20 years ago. I actually started my journey in pharmacogenomics in response to an article in Fortune magazine way back in 99 about a boy named Michael who had died of an overdose because like one in 20 patients, he had a DNA variation that in concert with his other medications made his dose unsafe for him. And his foster parents were actually uh, suspected of intentionally overdosing him at first until some smart uh, researchers and uh, physicians stepped forward and said, hey, I bet he might have been a 2D6 poor metabolizer. And they did some postmortem testing and vowed out he was 
in, in fact, just that. And so at the time I was working at Genelex, who was also acquired by Invitae, and we were looking for something that leveraged our core competency in providing high quality genetic testing. They had originally started in 1987 as one of the first forensic crime labs in the country with a National Institute of Justice grant. And when we saw this article, we went to PubMed and started looking at just how common these variations were, how many drugs they impacted, and naively thought, well, this is a no-brainer. It'll be standard of care in five, six years tops. I think we were among the first labs to start offering that testing about 20 years ago. There are a number of laboratories that offer it now, but it's just now starting to go more mainstream and people are starting to realize how important it is. I will say the FDA has known for some time uh, the importance. They've actually said that inhibitors, drugs that you take that actually inhibit those same cytochrome enzymes, are as important or should be considered equivalent to poor metabolizers of that same enzyme. Uh, So they've used that in drug development guidance for a very long time. So it's definitely something that's been more well understood on the drug development side, but actually hasn't been put into place as broadly in the clinical side. See, it's interesting how things evolve and often things take a lot longer to gain acceptance than than we anticipate, given how important they are. Now, so is the idea originally behind testing is there's uh, differences in the way people metabolize drugs and various other compounds. The worst case scenario is that that would be the cause of toxicity, and then maybe a a less significant but somewhat problematic uh, scenario would be that the drug is just simply ineffective and you're wasting time and money and the disease uh, state is deteriorating. Right. It's definitely both sides of the coin. You've got on one side the adverse drug events, which can be as severe as death, but lead oftentimes, and we've seen this in our published studies, to avoidable emergency room visits and hospitalizations. But on the treatment failure side, uh, the impact can be just as dire. So, you know, look at Plavix. I thought back in 2010 when the FDA put a black box warning on Plavix, uh, stating that 2C19 poor metabolizers were at a much higher risk of having a heart attack or stroke on the drug because they couldn't convert it to its active form. I literally thought, this is it. This is the tipping point for pharmacogenomics. But it still did not become standard of care, even though those poor metabolizers were at a three and a half times greater risk of having a heart attack or stroke if they were put on that medication. But I I think that is about to change. There's a very large study coming out, I believe in JAMA this month, the completion of about a 5,000 patient trial in 2C19 and clopidogrel that will hopefully put that to rest once and for all. I hope so. So you mentioned you were involved in the development of some of the first tests. Now, could you tell us uh, specifically what those tests were, how they worked, and then how have things how have things evolved since that point? Sure. When we first started uh, offering testing back in 2000, tests were very much done on a gene-by-gene basis. We were running them a single gene at the time in the laboratory, uh, and that was mainly focused on the three core cytochromes at the time, cytochrome P450, 2D6, 2C9, and 2C19. And for those listening that are not familiar with the cytochrome system, I think of these like highways for drugs. Drugs are very specific as to what highways they drive on to leave your body through the liver. Uh, Some of them only drive on one cytochrome highway, some half on one cytochrome highway, half on the other. And we essentially pretend that everybody has two lanes of all of these cytochrome highways when that would be a normal metabolism, metabolism phenotype. But poor metabolizers have no lanes of certain cytochrome highways or one lane or three or more lanes. Um, So having that information really alters the way we would prescribe drugs to them. So when we first started offering it, it would be like, oh, you had a bad reaction to Paxil. That is 
is metabolized by 2D6. Let's do a 2D6 test. And they were definitely very drug gene pair oriented. Uh, at this point, most laboratories that are running tests are doing multi-gene panels that include a very long list of both cytochromes as well as some receptor and transporter genes that we have more information on. Uh, most of them are going to cover all of the high uh, evidence drug gene associations that the Clinical Pharmacogenomics Implementation Consortium has put out as well as they may be doing additional research genes. And we're also hearing more and more about whole exome sequencing, including additional testing to get a, a robust pharmacogenomic panel and people trying to get proper pharmacogenetic calls out of whole genome sequencing as well. So definitely moving away from this kind of very expensive, almost $1,000 to do three genes to much lower cost full panel testing. It's interesting how things evolve. And then certainly with our with advances in sequencing and high throughput methodologies, the cost to test these large panels is becoming less and less expensive. So in, in many ways, the panels make sense. But are we ultimately going to move towards a more focused approach? Are the panels a shotgun approach? Or is are bigger panels better? You know, I think that it's your 80-20 rule. I think right now that a robust pharmacogenomic panel is going to provide the information you need for most things that impact drug response. Will we over time be able to run more robust assays that give us more information? Uh, Certainly, but I think that the information provided by a robust panel now, especially since it costs the same as just doing a drug gene pair <laughs> makes perfect sense. Uh, the key though is just like we store allergy information in electronic medical records and pharmacy software systems, we also need to discreetly store the pharmacogenetic information because this, like allergies, needs to be reevaluated every time a medication decision is made the rest of that patient's life. It's not like a tumor sequence where that is useful information while you're treating that cancer and maybe looking at when somebody else develops a similar cancer. It's information that is going to be useful in making sure you're getting the optimal drugs and doses the rest of your life, even if getting additional information over time ends up making sense. So tell us about Uscript. So you obviously saw an unmet need in the market and moved into Fillet. So what, what was that like in the early days? And can tell us a, a little bit about how you founded that and then the journey you've taken so far? Great question. So uh, when I was at Genelex, I was in charge of business development efforts and really had a pretty unique opportunity opportunity to speak with a lot of patients, payers, providers, pharmacists about widespread adoption, barriers to widespread adoption of pharmacogenomics. And there was a very common theme to the questions we would get. How do I know which patients are at risk and should be tested? How do I know how to act on that information in the context of other things that impact drug response? And then, of course, where are the studies validating this will actually improve outcomes and bend the healthcare cost curve? Um, so I think Uscript is really the culmination to answers to those questions. It actually has a very long history as well. While at Genelex, I was lucky enough to stumble across a web-based software originally developed by a couple of brilliant psychiatrists that ran into cytochrome-based drug interactions in their practice that existing drug interaction tools just did a poor job of warning them about. So back to that highways analogy on the cytochromes, they had essentially created a web-based like map quest uh, where you could uh, look at metabolic traffic jams on these cytochrome systems. And because of the way that they had created it, we were able to upgrade the software to take pharmacogenetic variants into account. 
And so we started offering that to referring providers as a web-based tool and generating these kind of color-coded drug gene tables that have become very popular today being issued by labs. Um, But what I realized is that those drug gene tables, which people tended to rely on more because they wouldn't go back and key everything into this web-based tool very often, they quickly became outdated. A, because the evidence was evolving so quickly, and B, because their drug regimen, herbals over the counters, et cetera, changed constantly. And so what was really needed was a dynamic tool uh, that existed within the prescribing and dispensing workflow. And so I actually spun Uscript out of Genelex to really focus on enterprise integration and deployment. So we got Uscript embedded within the Epic workflow. We were the first precision medicine application approved in the Cerner Smart on Fire App Store, won the uh, Allscripts Open App Orchard contest for one of the first integrations into their open app platform. It's really just focusing on bringing the tools to the point of care. On the who do you test uh, portion, we did actually get a patent issued last February on something called the pharmacogenetic interaction probability score. And this is a score where based on the patient's medication regimen, I can say there's an 80% probability that if you run this 22 gene panel on this patient, you will have at least one evidence-based drug or dose change guidance when their results come back. So it is a way for a payer or provider to actually stack rank the patients most likely to benefit from that testing and really hone in on who will benefit most. I am all for a world where testing is ubiquitous, but we're not going to get there overnight. So step one is to really focus those resources where they're going to have the most benefit. And that third point, you know, what about what about outcomes? We have published a series of peer-reviewed published studies. The first, we provided a Uscript generated report in seven outpatient clinics around the United States. And what we saw uh, was a dramatic reduction in emergency room visits and hospitalizations, saving an estimated 1132 per patient prior to the cost of testing in just four months and followed that up with a prospective randomized control trial. This was done in super high cost patients that were at very high risk of readmission. They were released to a high touch program in both a control and intervention arm where pharmacists actually visited them in the home because medication-related issues are a common cause of readmission. And in the arms where pharmacists had access to Uscript and pharmacogenetic information, we had 52% fewer readmissions, 42% fewer ER visits, and not an endpoint of the study, but 85% fewer deaths, saving over 4,000 a patient in 60 days. Clearly a very high-cost, high-risk patient population, but I think it demonstrates how important this information is to take into account, especially in those complex patient populations. That's incredible. I think a lot of people have great ideas, but then how do you actually go about implementing those? And I think you you said a lot there. And I think two key points are, one is how do you make the health economic argument and present it to payers? We've talked a lot about this on the podcast. A lot of people don't like to talk about, even talk about payers or know how know how to go about engaging the payers. But I mean, that's economics. It's unlimited uh, needs with limited resources. What is maybe obvious but not evident is that good outcomes are very often less expensive and payers are very much interested in good outcomes as well as as well as saving money. So how did you first approach the payers? That's a good question. I recently have spoken with a number of different payers. I think on the Genelex lab side, clearly we approached them around reimbursement for the testing. More recently, I think because of some of the peer-reviewed publications, reaching out to them and saying, hey, were you aware of this study? 
can we talk? Very recently, we did a analysis with a large payer in the United States. They looked at three years of claims data on 100,000 patients. 20,000 were Medicare Advantage, 20,000 commercial, 20,000 mental health, 20,000 total joint replacement, and 20,000 chronic heart failure. And we ran our risk analytics against their patient population and looked at that pharmacogenetic interaction probability or PIP score I talked about. So whether a patient had a high chance that would impact their care or low chance, and whether they went from low to high or high to low over time in those different patient populations. And then we also just looked at our ability to look at significant interactions the patient had even without the pharmacogenetic testing. I will, I'm always surprised to see the number of patients on contraindicated or major interacting medications for which there are alternates that would dramatically reduce um, the risk. And we looked at how those correlated with emergency room visit and hospitalization predictiveness. And what we found is that the pharmacogenetic interaction probability score was more indicative of a future hospitalization or emergency room visit diabetes with complications, then chronic heart failure, then the count of recent inpatient visits, so clearly a very large predictor. Prior to that, we did engage with Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield. They have a great program called the Vital Innovation Program, and they actually paid both for testing and integration of Uscript into a clinic that was part of Allegheny Health Network, and we tracked the impact on patient care. Almost 70% of patients had significant genetic interactions detected that were then, and about 70% of those were acted upon, saw a reduction in per member per month uh, cost of about 117 per member per month for the first three months after intervention. So I found if you go to payers with your initial studies that we did fund, I will say, and worked with the University of Utah Pharmacoeconomics Department as well as Harding University on. But once you do those initial studies and you share that initial information, they're usually willing to partner to validate the impact on their own patient population. That's fantastic. I think a lot of people may, so thank you for sharing. I think a lot of people may not appreciate everything that goes on behind the scenes in launching uh, something like this. And and to me, this concept of the numerical score is incredibly fascinating. I've been involved in things like that for cancer, but I didn't really appreciate the fact that it could be incorporated into other areas as well. And I think that is something that's useful for payers as well as physicians, because I think very often people, maybe they think they're looking for a magic bullet. And perhaps that's where there might be even some mistrust in testing where you say, oh, you have a test that's going to tell me this, when actually what you're trying to convey is, well, I can tell you that there's a probability of this happening. And that is probably what's going to be useful for you. So how did you come up with that that idea of the numerical score? Um, so the pharmacogenetic interaction probability score... You know, there was a a group of people, the original inventors of the software, as well as uh, one of the original founders of Genelex Labs, our software developers. As I said, one of the questions we would get is people are like, well, how do I know which patients I should be testing? And so we literally kind of brainstormed, well, how can we make it easier for them to understand what the risk is for these patients? And that's where we ended up. Yeah, (laughs) it sounds like it. Yeah, so we talked about payers, and then the other aspect, or another aspect, is how do you engage the physicians? You know, how do you get them on board? You know, because you could have the greatest product in the world, but how can you integrate it into their workflow, I guess, is one thing. You need to make it accessible for them to do it, and then there's probably an educational uh, component as well. But in terms of how do you get out to the physicians, I think the incentives have to align. You know, the reimbursement needs to pay there. You can't ask the physician or the health system to do more work if you're not going to pay them to spend more time 
you know, with high-risk patients if the benefit gets passed on to the payer. Uscript has historically had to focus on health systems where they are both the payer and the provider. So some of our early customers, for example, our first Epic deployment was Group Health of South Central Wisconsin, uh, which is like a mini, mini Kaiser for lack of a better description. So all of the incentives were aligned to see that risk and manage that risk and cover the testing and cover the cost of the software. Also worked with Clover Health, which is a new venture-backed Medicare Advantage plan. They actually own the physicians that visit their complex care patients in the home. So again, really having the incentives aligned in terms of, hey, when we manage these populations better with genetic information and proper clinical decision support. Not only do we improve patient care, but we're also driving down the total cost of care. Christine Ashcroft, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. So before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you, uh, you know, what what do you think the next decade is going to look like in terms of advances we're going to see in pharmacogenetic testing in general? And then specifically with your big news with the acquisition by Invite, what, what are things going to look like for Uscript? So I think that um, Uscript will be uh, folded in uh, to Invite and our ability to deliver real-time guidance on how to optimize drugs and doses based on genetics and any other factor that impacts drug response uh, will be extended to provide actionability within the clinical workflow on other genomic information. I think just as we saw the move from those kind of single gene tests to panels, we're going to move more and more to whole genome sequencing with robust uh, information, as well as, you know, proteomics, metabolomics, other omic information that will all be layered together to provide real-time decision support based on more and more factors. I think one thing that is coming, and I'm not sure entirely how it will fall out, you know, historically, we've had to rely on information making it to published peer-reviewed literature. Based on studies, it takes a long time, but we're now getting closer and closer to a time when we're actually going to have access to enough big data that we can really shorten the years and years and years it takes to learn new information about novel things that can really help us deliver patient uh, care in a better and more personalized way. So I think it's an incredibly exciting time. And I do think that genomics is going to quickly become part of our everyday healthcare, not just for cancer treatment or if you're diagnosed with a potentially rare disease, but for every patient that is, is going to see a physician or pharmacist. Christine Ashcraft, how can folks learn more about you and Uscript? Well, if you'd like to learn more about uh, me and Uscript, our website, www.uscript, Y-O-U-S-C-R-I-P-T.com. I'm also in LinkedIn under my name, Christine with a K Ashcraft. I'm always uh, happy to connect with other people in the precision medicine community or people looking to learn more about pharmacogenomics and how it can help them improve patient care. Our guest has been Christine Ashcraft from Uscript. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. Thank you.